And as you are uh, turning your way there, I do want to let you know uh, that there is a, a new uh, member, if you will, or our, our family has grown in this church, and that uh, though uh, little Walter is not a member of the church, he's certainly part of our community, and I know many of you have been praying for John and Lauren Blakicki, and if you have not received word, uh, baby uh, Walter, is it Walter Stephen? Is that what his name was? Yeah, close enough, right? Uh, Walter Blakicki uh, joined us maybe uh, less than two weeks ago. And we're just so delighted uh, for you, John and, and Lauren, and we praise God that he is the author of life. He creates life. And so we give him praise for uh, baby Walter. And so, Father, uh, uh, my friends, we now find ourselves in Luke chapter 9, and we begin in verse 1, that we might hear from God. Hear now the word of God. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some, Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Our Father, we're thankful now that we could come to your word and consider it. I think there's great truth here for us, perhaps even conviction in our life as we seek to be your ambassadors, that you would help us through your word, you would send us out through your word, that we would be those who faithfully proclaim Christ, speak of him, love and serve in his name, that he might spread his kingdom through us. We pray that you would help us even now as we consider this truth. We pray for our friends here this morning that do not know King Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord. Will you not even now begin to soften their heart for him who has been crucified and has conquered the grave, for him who invites all to come to him, that they might receive his mercy and grace. Do this now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's, it's been good to uh, spend some time with Rick and Angie, who's able to join a handful of other people uh, last night with dinner and hear what God is doing. It reminded me of an opportunity I had three years ago, not far from Papua New Guinea. It was, some of you have heard of my stories on the island of Tana, which is a small island in the Pacific Ocean, about 20 miles long and, and 10 miles wide. I had a friend there who had just finished translating the New Testament and he asked me to come out to Tana and to join a number of his villagers that I might uh, load up a backpack full of Bibles that he had recently translated and little uh, of what they call mega voice players, little audio players, solar paneled audio players of the Bible and take these backpacks to remote villages in which he could not get to that needed to be hiked there and 
Um, and we would take them there and present the gospel, and, and it sounded like a wonderful opportunity, exciting for me. And I said, absolutely. And, and uh, so I s- flew out there and spent a, a great deal of time in the village before we went. And then on, on the day we were going, we, we loaded up our backpacks, they call them baskets, and uh, we, we would hike. Some of the hardest backpacking I've ever done in my life in the jungle felt like you were breathing through a wet cloth and slipping and sliding everywhere. And half the time we weren't on trails. And we entered our first village and we went to the meeting square in the village there. It's called the Nakamal in their language. And um, the, the men would gather there because the women weren't allowed in the Nakamal. And they would gather around you. And, and uh, the village chief would be pointed to me. And I, I would begin to present the gospel. I would tell uh, these people that they have been made by God. And yet they, like all people, have rebelled against this God and are now at warfare with God. And yet God, out of his great love for them, he has made a way that there might be peace between them and God by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die upon a cross to pay for their rebellion. And three days later, he rose from the grave and says, if you will bow your knee to me and put your faith in me, that you might have my mercy and grace. And that you might be reconciled to this God. And we would, we, would, we would go from village to village. We did 19 villages presenting the gospel over a number of days. And every time after I finished the gospel presentation, I would, I would take a stack of these, these Bibles and these mega voice players. And I would, I would tell the village chief, I said, and God has sent me here to you today that I might give you his word. And I would present the, the, the gospel, the, the Bible, the New Testament to the chief. And... He would always generously receive them. I'll tell you, when I was doing that, it was, it was somewhat intimidating. Um, these, uh, even Rick was talking about the history of cannibalism in, in his uh, nation. And, and the people on Tana were some of the last people in the world to give up cannibalism. And many of them had never seen a white man before. And you would walk into these, these uh, knock-em-alls and you would literally have a hundred men just surrounding you. And many of them didn't, were not smiling, did not seem happy to see you. And, and you were there to tell them that they are rebels against God and that he will judge them if they do not repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, there was many times where I was wrestling with the Lord and, you know, I was hoping nobody would be home uh, type of thing. And they were always home and they would emerge from the jungle and and they would be carrying bows and arrows and and, uh, wearing native garments, which was not a lot of garments at all. And and they would uh, really stare at you and, and think, you know, what are you doing here? In fact, I remember one time we were approaching a village and there was some rustling in, in the bushes and, and all of a sudden uh, the, these kids just darted out of uh, these bushes and ran back to their, um, to their village uh, before we could get there, kind of screaming and hollering. And one of the men that was with me, one of my translators, uh, he began to shout out to these kids and uh, yell at them. And, and then all the, the nine translators that were with me or the, the guys carrying the Bibles with me, they all began to laugh hysterically. And I, I said, well, what, what did you tell them? And, and the, the translator said, I told them the red devil is here. Go get your weapons. <laughs> and, and they all thought that was very funny. Uh, I'm finding that funny. Uh, it was an incredible and extraordinary opportunity to see what God is doing. And it certainly uh, did more in my heart. I could go on for days with stories about what God did through those efforts. When I was preparing for that time, uh, this passage before us was very meaningful to me, just even in my preparation, because you see, it's a story when Jesus sends out his apostles to preach from village to village, and he tells his apostles, listen, you're going to go, and you need to understand before you go that some people are going to accept you, 
but others are going to reject you. Now you remember it was in chapter 6 of our study of Luke that he called all the disciples to himself and out of those, those disciples after a night of prayer he chose out 12 to be his apostles and he even named them. And you, we almost expected them for him to then give them a job to do. Okay, you're now my apostles. This is what you're supposed to do. But, but after he called those apostles, after they were named, they're not mentioned at all in the rest in Luke chapter 6. They're not mentioned at all in Luke chapter 7. And we only see them again later on in the end of Luke chapter 8 when he's rebuking them for losing their faith in the midst of a storm upon the Sea of Galilee. You see, it just seems like they've been doing nothing in particular other than following Jesus and listening to Jesus and watching Jesus. They have no unique role at this time. But it is when we get to chapter 9 that everything begins to change with the apostles and really the disciples around Jesus. In fact, they will be mentioned seven times in this chapter. And here in chapter 9, for the first time, they will engage in ministry by themselves. And I trust uh, they must have thought this was pretty exciting and thrilling and also intimidating and scary. There's something special about doing something for the first time, isn't there? Maybe you remember the first time you you got on an airplane or the first time you, you saw the ocean or the first time you sat behind a wheel and, and you remember these and perhaps you remember the, your first date with your spouse. Uh, I certainly remember my first date with my spouse. It was, I was invited to go to the fair with three of her girlfriends the night before they were planning on going. And uh, I, the reason I was invited was they had a ride and their ride got sick. And so they knew I had a car and they knew I had eyes on this young cheerleader named Allegra. And uh, they said, well, let's call Stephen. He has got a car. And see, I was well aware of this. I wasn't deceived at all. I know fully well that they were using me. Um, <laughs> but I said, okay, no problem at all. And so we, we, we drove to the fair, and Allegra consented only if her friends promised not to leave her alone with me, which they promptly did within minutes of arriving. And the rest is history. Right? Of course, these apostles aren't going out on a date, are they? They're going to preach the gospel in villages without Christ. Jesus is, in a sense, calling them to himself, saying, Men, I'm sending you out on your own to preach the kingdom of God. And if, if you know anything about the apostles, as the, the gospels inform us, you can kind of imagine how they must have responded. Thomas perhaps fainted, and Philip maybe started to cry, and Peter said, Well, it's about time. All the rest were, I trust, intimidated. The first time without him, the first sermon that they have to preach. And it's here that Jesus begins to use them. You see, this chapter here in chapter 9 is, is not simply about Jesus using his apostles, but it's about him saying goodbye to Galilee. I want you to look over in verse 51, a very important hinge verse in the Gospel of Luke, when the Bible says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so, in other words, his Galilean ministry is ending. And if we remember the, the chronology of what Christ has done, he started in Judea, and then when John was arrested, he would withdraw to the north, the rural north in Galilee. And he's been ministering all this time in Luke's gospel up in the north in Galilee. Sometimes this is called the Galilean springtime. Very little opposition to Christ, great success in ministry, massive amount of miraculous activity. And yet we see here is a time coming for Jesus to set his face towards Jerusalem. The time was getting ready for him to be taken up, and he set his face to go on to Jerusalem. And 
And so it's in chapter 9 that we see the end of his Galilean ministry. In fact, you'll notice in our study of Luke that the miracles will dramatically decrease from this point on. And his teaching will dramatically increase along with opposition as he walks towards his crucifixion. But before he leaves, it seems like he's, he's given the Galileans one last chance. He sends out his apostles, which are, of course, all Galilean, except perhaps Judas Iscariot. We're not sure where he's from. But the other individuals we know are all Galilean, almost as if it's their last chance to, to, to come into the kingdom, their last chance to respond to Christ. So he sends them out. And though you and I are not apostles, I, I would contend with you this morning that what Christ teaches them has great implications for you and I as his disciples, that we too have been sent out by Christ. In John 20 and verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, so I am, you know what? Sending you. I'm sending you just as the Father has sent me. And so their work is in many ways our work too. May God help us to understand it as we consider, first of all, the apostles' empowerment. The apostles' empowerment. You know, verse 1, And he called the the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Literally, he summoned them to him uh, is is the terminology. He has um, not just invited them, but there's a summoning. The picture I have is almost as a military commander summoning his soldiers to him. Of course, I never served in the military, but from what I gather, commanders don't summon soldiers to give them options in life. They don't summon their soldiers to give them um, directions to, to consider and to deliberate. They summon them to give them orders. Christ is summoning these men to command them. He summons them together and, and he, he calls them with this authority, but he also grants them his authority as you notice that he gave them power and authority. He gave them the authority to the right to act. He gave them power, the ability to act. In this case, you'll notice it's going to be miraculous ability over demons and diseases. You see that in verse 1, that they have, they have authority and power over all demons and to cure diseases. And so they go out demonstrating this power. And I, I don't know if you can imagine what that must be like as you walk into a village and, and a, a man with a demon begins to cry out and beg you for mercy as they did for Jesus. Or even perhaps more profound would it be to walk up to someone with, with perhaps a terminal disease and simply with a touch of a hand and a uh, prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, you could heal that. Or, or a feverish child being held in the arms of an anxious parent, and you could walk up in the name of Jesus and, and pray over this child, and the, the f- fever would leave, and the child would be instantly well. Or watch a leper restored to wholeness, or a, a crippled man jump for joy. It must have been incredible and awesome as Jesus has given them His power and His authority. And we saw His power and authority in chapter 8, did we not? As He very easily demonstrates it over disaster and over an army of demons. And over disease and, and over death. And Christ has all authority, and, but it's one thing to have all authority and power. It's another thing to be able to actually give it to other people, which is exactly what he did. He gave them this as he sent them on to continue Jesus' ministry. And I think he very much does the same thing for us. Though I'm not sure we have his power in the way they did, we certainly have his authority. You know, when Jesus... Uh, is about to be taken up to heaven. He, he gathers them together once again, and he says to them, you know this in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. You notice Jesus uh, he combines the sending out of his disciples to make disciples with the fact that he has all authority in heaven and earth. And so I want you to understand when we think about being sent out and bearing witness for Christ, that can be somewhat intimidating to us. It can be somewhat scary to us. But the reality is that the one who has sent us possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. He has it all. There is no authority outside his authority. There is no authority which he does not have authority over. He has it all. And that is the one who has sent us to do his work. That is the one who has sent us to proclaim his message. In fact, I love how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20 saying, We are ambassadors for Christ. Now listen to this. God making his appeal through us. I find that extraordinary. That when I open my feeble mouth and, and, and offer my best, that God through the power of the Holy Spirit will actually make the appeal through my words. Donald Barnhouse, the great preacher of old, recognized this truth. He was once on a, a trip with a friend, and, and the, the subject of music came up. Uh, these are different kind of people than, than me, because I don't talk about these things. But his friend said to him, what's your favorite symphony? Um, I, would, I don't know how to answer that question, but Barnhouse, an educated man, just clearly did. He says, well, it's Brahms first. And his friend says, well, how does that go? And so he begins to whistle it, right? The whistle, the main theme. And then recalling this event, Barnhouse writes, Then suddenly I was overcome with how ridiculous it was that I should be trying to communicate that great musical composition by my weak whistle. But by the wonder of the human brain, my weak whistle was changed in my friend's mind into strings and percussions and brass of the full symphony orchestra. He continues by writing, Every time I stand up to proclaim the Bible, I am overcome with how ridiculous it is that I should be trying to communicate God's word. It would be hopeless, except for one thing. God is teaching through me. And he is also in, the, in, the, in men and women who listen. So he turns my weak little whistle into the full symphony of God's revelation in their minds and in their lives. You are Christ's ambassador, God making his appeal through you. This God has all authority in heaven and earth, and he has sent you. And he has done so with a message, just as he did with the apostles. As we see, secondly, the apostles' ministry, note verse 2. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. It's really two works there, isn't there? They're to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I assume they're to announce that it has arrived. Jesus Christ, when he began his ministry, the very first sermon he preached was that, according to the Gospel of Mark, is that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is near. And so they go out and announce the kingdom of God, which teaches us, doesn't it, that those whom they're speaking to already know what the kingdom of God is. They're anticipating its coming. In fact, the Old Testament has prepared them. And the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that the world is in such a mess that one day God will come and put everything right. Isaiah 40, for instance. But it also tells us that the world is such a mess 
that a king will come, often called the son of David or the, the, the offshoot of Jesse. And he will come and put all things right. And he will come and end wars and suffering and disease will end and poverty and injustice will be abolished. And all the world will be united around this king. Second Samuel chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 11. But it also told us that a new relationship was coming, a, a new covenant with God, that he would actually not just deal with the world outside of us, but he would deal with the, with the evil that is inside our heart. Jeremiah verse 31, uh, chapter 31, Ezekiel 37. And you put all this together, the Bible repeatedly in the Old Testament tells us the world is such a mess because of sin. That David's son in some places and God himself in other places will come and he will make everything right. He'll fix it all. He'll begin to redeem it, it all. And Jesus is saying, go tell him it's begun. Go tell him I've started it. Because the son of David has arrived and he is God himself. Go announce that. Go proclaim it. In fact, in chapter 10, he would send out another group of 72 and he would say, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So please understand that this kingdom is, is not a, a territory, is it? It's, a, it's wherever God's rule. Wherever God rules in your heart, there the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is wherever Jesus exercises his kingly power, wherever people honor him as king. And I tell you, it is spreading more and more as people submit to King Jesus and enter his kingdom. Whether it's in northern Virginia or northern Iraq with our dear friends who are there, or it's in uh, Papua New Guinea among the Mok or the Lucy people, the kingdom is advancing. Now, it is not here fully. It will come fully when Christ returns. He will come at that time in judgment to put down evil. He came the first time, not in judgment to destroy evil, but in grace to forgive it in our hearts. And this is what he has come to bring the kingdom of God. And so he tells them to go and proclaim it, announce that it's here. In fact, friends, this is the good news. You notice verse 2, he says to them, go proclaim the kingdom of God. You get to verse 6, look what the, uh, the Bible describes. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel. You see, the gospel is the announcement that the king has come and brought his kingdom and has made a way for all to enter into his kingdom through his death and his resurrection. And Christ came to announce that. And so must they. And now that responsibility has been given to you and I. You and I have been given the responsibility to announce the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus would say in, in the Gospel of John that when I leave, you're going to do greater works than even I. And that has caused many people a great deal of confusion. How can we do greater works than Jesus? I don't think he's referring to the miraculous activity of, of those who follow him. The apostles didn't even do greater works than Jesus in that sense. But what he is saying is when the church gathers together, you will penetrate more people's lives around this world than I can do here in Israel. You will go do greater and amazing works. And this is the work that he has given us to proclaim that the borders are open to the kingdom of God, that they may come and submit to the king. But you notice that they're not just simply to proclaim the kingdom of God. They're to show it in some sense. You see that in verse 2? Proclaim the kingdom of God and heal, he says. And so show that the kingdom of God has arrived. Show what the kingdom of God is like. And they would do this by this miraculous activity. Many people, I think, are confused why Jesus performs miracles. Many people um, struggle with that in our day. And when we see things that are extraordinary and, and, and things with, with, that are spectacular and all these special effects, they're generally designed for us to look back and go, wow, that's amazing. 
And, and so sometimes in that light of that, we apply that to Jesus Christ. And we think, well, what Jesus is doing is just kind of making us go, wow, isn't he powerful? Isn't he wonderful? But that's not what Jesus is doing at all. If, if he was doing that, he'd just fly around the place and do flips in the sky. And everybody would stand back and go, oh, isn't that incredible? Look at him go. Or he would roll up his sleeve and look, nothing up my sleeve. And he'd cast a fireball and burn up a tree or something like that. Right? He didn't do any of these gimmicks. He doesn't do any of these tricks. Because he's not interested in simply flexing his muscles. He's not interested in simply this naked display of power. The things he's choosing to do shows us the redemptive purpose for which he has come. He has come to show us what the kingdom of God will be like. He is reversing the effects of the, of the curse and sin, showing us glimpses, first fruits of what God's kingdom will be when we enter it. He is, he's, in fact, some people say that miracles are a suspension of the natural order. I think it has been rightly said that his miracles are the only natural things in an unnatural world. And what I mean by that is what one day, this world's not natural, this world is messed up. One day he's going to fix it. He's going to, to redeem it. There'll be a place, a day, when there are no more hospitals and no more police and no more soldiers. I, I was down in Farmville yesterday. Uh, my mentor died, my pastoral mentor, 73 years old, went to sleep. Healthy man, full-time ministry, and did not wake up. I praise the Lord that Lee Copeland has gone to heaven, uh, but he leaves behind a grieving church and a grieving family. And we grieved yesterday. We mourned the loss of Lee. We think it's too early for Lee to die. And yet one day we're coming into a, a land in which there will be no more death. We won't go to funerals anymore. We'll put locks on our doors. We won't have 911 on our phone. There won't be airbags in our cars. There won't be police, there won't be soldiers, there won't be hospitals. That Christ is going to fix it all. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. That's where you and I are headed. A land where the effects of sin and the curse are reversed. And Christ has come here to show that. He's show what the kingdom of God is like. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God and heal. But friends, this continues to be our calling as well. You see, we, we ought not in our zeal to share the gospel forget that we are called to acts of compassion and service to those who are neglected, to those who are hurting, those who are stained by sin. Service must be part of our evangelism. It must be. We must not just simply tell people that God loves them. We must actually show what that means by having compassion upon them simply as Christ has shown us in his life and as he has commissioned his apostles here. So will you, will you join me? This is something I've been praying for for probably about a year now for our church, that, that we would be a community that is more effectively engaging our neighbors, whether that's just you individually in the relationship you have or as our church corporately, that we would find ways in which we can leave these walls and begin to make a dramatic and powerful impact upon the community around us. I, I've been praying. I don't know why God has put this on. I've been praying that perhaps there would be a prison ministry in the life of this church or some type of active children's ministry that we might be able to get into the schools and work with elementary schools. And, and, and there are a number of other ministry opportunities that, that must be out there. Can, can, will you pray with me that God will lead them to us? That, we can faithfully engage. Maybe your community group can begin to pray about the needs that you are aware of and that you might be able to, out of a zeal for the kingdom of God and a love for those who are hurting, go and do acts of compassion as you proclaim Christ. This is what he sent them to do. But you notice, thirdly, the apostle's manner. This is particularly interesting to me and it's caused a number of consternation in those who comment on the Bible. Verse 3, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. So he's sending them out, and he gives them a, a packing list, doesn't he? 
And yet, rather than telling them what to bring, he tells them what they cannot bring. And you cannot bring four things. You can't bring a staff. You can't bring a bag, right? So there's no luggage on this trip. You, you, uh, you can't bring bread or food, and you, you can't bring money, right? Travel light, in other words. And now, we're not sure why he's telling them to leave all these things behind, but I think it's probably safe to speculate that what he wants them to do is depend upon God in the ministry in which God has called them to do. That they are to even forcibly create scenarios in which they must depend upon the Father. Because I think this work that he is sending them out is not simply a kingdom-building work, though clearly it is, it is also a faith-building work. He wants not just to work in the villages in which the apostles go, but in the hearts of the apostles which he has sent. Now, if you've ever participated in missions, you know that to be exactly true what happens. You go to do ministry, and you pray that they be blessed by your service, but God clearly begins to work in your heart in profound and amazing ways. I think it is, it's all over this passage as he says, I want you to leave these things behind and trust God to provide for you. Go where I send you. Do what I ask. And even when you have all sorts of unanswered questions, trust in God to provide. I find it particularly interesting that it says, take no staff. It's interesting because in the parallel account in Mark's gospel, he tells them specifically, when you go, take a staff. And so a lot of people think, well, here's the contradiction in the Bible. You have two accounts of the same event, one telling to take a staff, the other saying, take no staff. Well, that is easily dismissed when you realize there are two different words being used in the Greek. Mark tells them to take a walking staff. Luke is telling them, don't take a club. A club would be used for protection. You don't need protection. Rely upon the Lord and God will do what he deems best. When I think about the fact that they had to leave these clubs behind, any defense behind, I'm reminded of the last conversation between Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Many of you know Jim Elliot, who was martyred for Christ when he was 29 years of, old, years, years of age. And the last conversation he had with his wife as he about to board the plane to go and visit this very hostile and treacherous uh, tribe, his wife said, will you protect yourself if they attack? They had a, a gun on the plane. And Jim said to his wife, no. And Elizabeth said, well, why won't you? In which Jim replied, because we are ready for heaven, and they are not. It reminds me of what Christ is doing here. So rely upon me. Let God do what he thinks is best. Let God meet your needs. Well, you n notice, fourthly, that um, we see the apostles' reception. Notice how they'll be received. In verse 4, he, he says, And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there do not depart. So he's saying you're going to be received in some places. There's going to be hospitality. You're going to go in some villages, and people are going to enter the kingdom of God. And he says, stay, stay in that house. Don't, don't move from house to house to house. We're not, again, we're not sure why he says this, but it may be, hey, that's where God is working. Stay there. Join God where he's working, as it has been said. It, it may be that he wants them to move on from that village. So if you just stay in one house, you can only stay for so long before they ask you to leave. And so you, he, I'm perhaps conveying the urgency that you need to go and move on to other villages. And you need to go from village to village in this, this short-term mission that he gives them. So he sends them off and he gives them instructions about what to do when they're received. But notice verse 5, he also gives them instructions about what to do when they are rejected. And, and, he, and he says, well, whatever you, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. In other words, not everyone's going to accept you. 
When you go and talk about the kingdom of God and talk about the king who has come, not everyone is going to be pleased with those words. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. When you have talked about Christ, not everyone jumps up for joy and says, I'm so glad that you're here to tell me this. In fact, perhaps most of the time, the reaction is opposite. It seems to me, in our, especially in our culture, that we could talk about anything. Sports, weather, politics, even. Except we bring up Jesus. And that you want to kill a conversation, mention the name Jesus. I, I, many of you know I was backpacking in Glacier National Park earlier this month, and, and I would meet with backpackers there in the backcountry, and we would gather around a campfire, and, and there's a camaraderie amongst backpackers as we're out there on the side of the mountain, you know, 10, 10 20 miles from the nearest road, and, and we would just have wonderful conversations, and of course the conversation goes, well, what do you do? And they talk about their job, and they eventually say, well, what do you do? Right? And you just want to kill a conversation, you say, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor, I said, and I'll tell you, I don't know, the the crickets got really loud. It it was on the plane coming home, talking to a lawyer. You know, God, in his sense of humor, sits me next to a lawyer, my favorite kind of people. And so we're, and I'm, I'm, okay, tell me about being a lawyer. And, you know, then, and he's telling me, what do you do? I'm a pastor. He said, well, I'm going to get back to this article I'm reading. It kills the conversation. You see, we're, we'll be rejected. You will be rejected if you talk about Jesus. That will happen. You need to be aware of that. He he even tells them here. In fact, he says to them, if you're rejected, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take off your sandals and I want you to slap them together and shake off the dust as you walk away. And that sounds kind of ruthless and, and ugly, but it was actually a practice in which they would do when the Jews would leave a Gentile land and enter Israel. They would take off their sandals and smack them together to get all the dust off so to not take Gentile dust into Israel in order to contaminate Israel. And what Jesus is saying as he sends them to Israeli villages, he's saying, treat them like Gentiles. He's saying... Proclaim to them in a very vivid and powerful way that they are not my people if they reject your message. It's a warning to them. It's a very vivid and powerful warning, but it is a declaration. When you reject us, you are rejecting God and placing yourself under God's judgment. Right? I, I think about all the times I've been rejected for uh, sharing Christ, and I have never once taken my shoes off and smacked them together. I, I think I should have tried that on the airplane, just started while I was reading this article, right? But there are other ways to warn them, isn't there? There's God's truth. is not just an offer of grace, but it is a proclamation of danger. When you reject God, you place yourself under God's judgment. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to understand that we say with no glee in our heart, but based upon the truth of God's word, that if you turn your back on Jesus Christ, you are unreconciled to your maker, who is holy and just and will judge you eternally for your sin. There is only one way to escape judgment, and it is to bow your knee to King Jesus. This is what he's trying to teach them. I like how J.C. Ryle put it 200 years ago. Let them not be cast down if their work seems in vain and their labor without profit. Let them remember that the very first preachers whom Jesus employed were sent forth with a distinct warning that not all would believe. Let them work on patiently and sow the good seeds without fainting. And so they would go. I trust this is incredibly hard. Because remember, they don't, they don't have food. They don't have a cell phone. They don't have money. And so when you go in a village and they say, get out of here, that means you're not eating. That means you are sleeping outside. Don't take two tunics, he said. You don't even have a blanket. It's hard. 
In fact, I remember when I was in Tana and we were, it was at dusk and we were in a village and I just presented the gospel and we were hoping we could stay in that village and the, one of the translators who was with me went and talked to that village chief and, and, and he came back with a big smile upon his face. So I thought that meant we're staying. And he says, Pastor, we can't stay here. But do not worry. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And, and, and with a big smile on his face, he says, we shall be like Jesus sleeping in the jungle tonight. Now, I wasn't smiling. <laughs> but he was, he, it was exactly what he says. They will reject you. Listen, ministry's hard. There is sacrifice in ministry. This is what Christ calls us to do. I, I wonder if you could think about where you are sacrificing. Where are your sacrifices, Where are you walking by faith? Where are you serving in such a way or giving in such a way or loving or forgiving in such a way where you you say, God, this makes no sense unless you are my God. And in fact, I don't even know how this is going to work out, but I'm trusting to do what you have called me to do. This is what he calls them. And you notice lastly, the apostles' success in verse 6, and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. The word begins to spread, and they proclaim the gospel and demonstrate this authoritative power. You notice the word even spreads to the palace, verse 7, and Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. So the, the, the word goes all the way up to the palace, evidently there are accounts even in Herod's court that hey, there's a man from my village who had leprosy and now it's gone or there was a, a, a cousin of mine who was possessed by a demon and now he is freed and these accounts are going all over the place and word is spreading around but do you notice what everyone is talking about in Galilee and it is not the apostles but it is Jesus isn't that extraordinary he sends out the apostles and what everybody wants to know is not who are these men but who is Jesus and they have all these different options don't they But it all comes back to to who he is. Why why are they talking about Jesus and not the apostles? I would suggest to you it's because they're doing their ministry correctly. That they go and they minister in the name of Jesus. They preach in the name of Jesus. They heal in the name of Jesus. And they move on leaving people talking about Jesus. Not not Peter, not John, not James, but Christ. This seems to be the model of ministry that brings God glory. That we would touch people's lives in such a way that they are impressed with Christ who has sent them. It was uh, in February that a team from this church went out to Tijuana to help a woman who was living in a shack, a dear sister in Christ. And, and, and in fact, your garden shed, though maybe smaller than her home, I trust is, is nicer than her home. It was her and her children living in a place with no electricity or insulation. Uh, anything that you you and I would think would be a home. And these men went out there and they, they, they put electricity in this house and they put insulation in this house and they put walls up in the house and they, they treated the floor in the house. And we all gathered together at the end and, and we're just kind of sharing and testifying and going to pray together. And, and she, she says through Dave Tazala, our missionary in Tijuana, and she says to this team and she says to Dave, she says, you know, my life has been so hard. My life has just been so hard. But now I know God loves me. And I thought that's the exact right statement. I was so happy that she didn't say, now I know that these men love me. Though they do love her. They wouldn't have gone if they did not. But she understands the fact that these men are there is not simply a testimony to their love, but more importantly, it is a testimony to God's love for sending them there. 
And this is what's exactly happening here. Everybody wants to talk about Jesus. And and Herod in particular, he's rather concerned. In verse 9 it says, Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this that I hear such things about? You see, his conscience has begun to testify against him, isn't it? In Mark's account, by the way, it says, when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. You see, he's more than perplexed. He's haunted. His conscience is digging up old sins from the grave and parading them through his mind. And he is overcome with the guilt of which he has had. And he is, he is fearful and he is dreading this. I think conscience is an interesting thing. I think guilt is fascinating to me. I wonder where that comes from if we simply have evolved from lower life forms. I think one of the greatest, one of the most effective apologetics for Christianity against those who believe in evolution is you just simply ask them, tell me about guilt. How does natural selection allow for guilt? How does that help us survive? It almost seems like it does the opposite. Tell me about conscience. Where does that come? How does that evolve naturally? And Herod is is overcome by it. His sin is done, but it is still in his heart. And he is uh, terribly uh, concerned, as he says in verse 9, Who is this man? Who is he? And I think that's the question of, of Luke, at least up to this point in Luke's gospel. Who is he? That's what everybody's asking. Who is this guy? How does he do such things? I think there is no better question. Let me suggest to you, not more than suggest to you, let me proclaim to you this morning that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He has come to this earth and put on human flesh. He has become a man and eternally will be so in order to live a perfect life in your place, to obey the law when you would not and then die the death that you should have but cannot. And there upon the cross, he took all the wrath of God upon himself for those who would trust in Jesus Christ. And three days later, out of great power and strength, rose himself from the dead. And now he declares through his word and his people, if you will bow your knee to King Jesus and place your faith in him, he will shower you with mercy and grace. But you must call out to him, God, give me grace for my sin. Forgive me for my sin. I believe. I trust. You can do that right now. You can come to Christ right now and be accepted into the family of our great and glorious God. This is what he has sent us to do, Christians. That's your work. You understand that? That's your work. It is to proclaim Christ, to talk about Jesus. That's why you're here. It's not the only reason you're here, but I would dare to say it's perhaps the most important reason you are here. And I know there's so many people that say, well, listen, sharing my faith, that's for the strong Christians. You know, I'm, I'm just not there yet. I, I don't know what to say. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm immature in my faith. And that's for people like you, Pastor, and the elders and, and the, the strong Christians. I would suggest to you, by the way, that one of the reasons perhaps you are not a strong and mature Christian is that you are not placing yourself in places where your faith would actually grow. So stop waiting to grow in your faith and start acting out of trusting the Lord, proclaiming his truth to even those who would reject it. And I trust you will find that your life begins to abound and your faith begins to grow strong. And you say, well, my life's a mess. You know, I've got to fix my life and I've got, got all these problems and my family's a mess. I can't start telling people about Jesus. I need to, to focus on these things. I would suggest to you once again that perhaps the reason your life is a mess is you don't have a cause great enough to live for. And I think so many people are irritated and bored and, and have lives of, of, of little meaning because they're actually not living for the life in which God has given them to be sold out for our King, for our Lord. 
So let me suggest to you, my friends, my brothers and sisters, will you build the kingdom? Will you not talk about Jesus? Will you not share the gospel? Maybe there's a card you can write this week. Maybe, maybe you can read a book, a simple Christian book, and, and hand it out. Maybe you can invite someone over for dinner or coffee this week. Maybe you can look for needs to meet. Maybe you can pray for someone. Maybe you can walk up to someone and say, listen, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I follow Jesus Christ. I, I believe in him, and I believe he answers prayers. I just feel like I should ask you, is there anything I could pray for you that I may call out to God? That we begin to have gospel conversations. Well, you see, at the end of our verse, as we end our time, very last phrase, and Herod sought to see him. He sought to see him. He finally get his chance, you know that? We find it in Luke chapter 23. Herod saw Jesus. He saw him when he was on trial. He said to Jesus, hey, I, I hear all these miracles. Show me a miracle. Do a miracle. Of course, Jesus wouldn't dance to Herod's song. And so he began to mock him and ridicule him and rejected him. And he sent them back to Pilate to be crucified. I just want to remind you, if Christ was rejected, shouldn't we be willing to be rejected as well? In fact, it was precisely because Christ was rejected that you and I are accepted by God. That's why. Because they did reject him. Will you not go forth outside the camp, as the Bible tells us, that we might bear the reproach that Christ endured? And that for you, those of you who do not know him, will you not accept him today, that God would accept you through him? Our Father, we're thankful for your word and the challenge that it provides for us. We ask that you would equip us, dear Lord, that you would prepare us for the work in which you have called us to do. Father, I think this is an area we can grow in as a church. I think this is an area we need to grow in as a church. And so, Father, will you even now just begin to work in our hearts through your spirit? Father, will you even just this moment as we end today through your spirit, that you would convict my brothers and sisters, that they would even this very moment pray a, a simple prayer. Father, use me this week to talk about Jesus. Help me to talk about Christ. We want to be faithful. We want to do what you have called us to do, knowing that you who have sent us has all authority in heaven and earth, and you are with us even to the very end of the age. We don't go, though, and do we, Lord? We go with Christ. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.